two of the announcements that Pastor Curtis made, I, I wanted to uh, re-announce, sort of re-emphasize. I know how announcement time can go. I've been in church for a long time. So when the announcements come, we, we can tend to uh, block that time of our life just out. So I wanted to emphasize a couple of the things that he mentioned. One was the class that we're going to uh, do in October uh, that he mentioned regarding family worship. Uh, so families worshiping together is what we're calling this class. And uh, I want to open that up to all of you. Uh, whether you are single or you're married or you have children, uh, what we're going to try to do in this class is, is number one, I want to encourage all of you to uh, think about what it would look like to formally worship as a, as a family. And some of these will be good patterns that you want to set, even if you don't have a, a nuclear family that you're in your home yet. So um, it applies to everybody. But I'm going to do my best biblically uh, to encourage you to see your home uh, really as a little church. We come together here on Sundays and we worship together as a, as a bigger church. Uh, but we're really we're a lot of small churches uh, throughout the week in our home, especially those of you who are husbands and fathers and have a wife and children at home, uh, you are like a pastor to your family. In fact, before any man can be a pastor in the church, okay, Paul says to Timothy that he needs to pastor his little family before he can pastor the big family. Uh, so what we're going to talk about is, is what that looks like then practically, um, to read together as a family, to pray together as a family, and to sing together as a family. And so a lot of you I know don't have that uh, built into your heritage or into your upbringing. And so this is to, uh, to encourage you and then give some real practical insight into, into what, that could, what that could look like. So that's going to be the second, third, and fourth week. Uh, in October on Wednesday evening, so three weeks. If you can, if you can make it, uh, I hope it'd be beneficial for you. I also want to stress as well um, the dinner that we're going to be having here on October twelfth. Um, we've got a small missions team that's been helping. You've noticed for the last six months or so to um, to educate us to help try to open our eyes to what the global needs are of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not just something that needs to be brought here. In fact, in our country, the gospel has been been brought uh, tremendously and has permeated much of of our culture at least the spoken gospel there but there are parts of the world um, where the gospel uh, it has not infiltrated where god's word has not infiltrated and so when we talk about world missions and, and global missions we're talking about those people groups around the world who at this point do not have access to the gospel and praying and being a part of and going seeing the gospel go to these places so We've done a few things. We've got the prayer cards. We've got the board out here. Um, we've let at least our members know that we've got a team that prays here on Saturday morning. Um, but we'd like to see that gain more momentum. And so my prayer is that the, the meal that we have together on October 12th would sort of uh, kickstart that. So if you call Veritas your church home, please, uh, uh, please uh, make every effort you can to be here. And, and for those of you who are visiting or haven't been around long or it's your first time, whatever, uh, you as well are welcomed and invited. I think that's going to be a special, uh, a special night for us. Uh, if you have your Bible, please open up if you haven't already. Uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 22 today. Let's pray before we get started. A great Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. God, you, uh, you said through the psalmist that your word is like a light into our dark path. That through it you impart understanding to the simple. 
So, Lord, if we've come here today and we don't think we're simple, and we pray that you'd help us to see ourselves as simple. God, the, there is so much truth in this universe that we do not know and will not know unless you reveal it to us. And many of us have so much to learn, God, just from what you've revealed in your holy word. So give us anticipation now as we open up the Bible, as we study the Bible. Help us to weigh it carefully the way we should, to see it as what it is, your word to us. And God, move in us, move in our hearts and move in our spirits. Change us, God, by your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and teach us and give us understanding so that we could see this world and see you and see ourselves well with a sober view, God. Awaken us, we pray today, to our sinfulness. God, if there are people here this morning who, who do not believe they're sinful, who do not understand their rebellion against you, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to this today. I pray that you would show them, but you would show all of us, God, how needy we are. How much we need from you. How dependent on you we are. How incapable on our own we are. And that we would see in this word today how great your provision has been for us. So please do this work, God, in our hearts, around us, through us. We pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're going to work through uh, all of this text today. We're going to work through all of this text, but we're going to start with looking at verses 15 through 19. And then we'll come back to verses 13 and 14. I think that verses 13 and 14 uh, provide this uh, foundational faith experience that Abraham has that then leads into this interaction between he and God in verses 15 through 19. I think the main point of this passage, though, comes through in verses 13 and 14. So I'd like us, I'd like us to end there. That's where I'd, I'd want us to, to go. But first, verses 15 through 19. And to give it context, let me go back again and read verses 9 through 14. So read verses 9 through 14. Then we'll look closely at 15 through 19. And then we'll come back. And spend the majority of our time on those two very important verses, 13 and 14. Beginning in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up 
as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So that are the events. Those are the events that precede what we read now in verses 15 through 19. Let's take this a verse at a time. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And now God is going to reiterate the promises that he has beforehand made to Abraham. But something to notice here before we move on in verse 16, God says this phrase, by myself, I have sworn, which is a really interesting thing to see in your Bible. Uh, We use this in our culture when we want to uh, communicate to somebody that we really mean what we're saying. Right. And so if I tell you something and I sense or I tell you I'm going to do something and I sense that you don't believe that I'm going to do it, I may say, no, no, listen, I swear to you that I'm going to do this. Right. Apparently, we just don't we don't have good track records with people. So when we say things, they may not take us all that seriously. So we've got we've got ways to emphasize our sincerity. Right. So if we're really serious, you know, we say things like, I swear on, you know, like my dead grandmother's grave. You've heard that. I don't know what that means, but it means something important. It means I really mean what I'm telling you. I swear on my dead grandmother's grave, I will be there. Uh, Or you'll hear people say, uh, They'll put their hand on the Bible and swear something or say, I swear to God that what I'm saying is true. So, so what, do, what are we saying when we say that? What we're saying is, as God is my witness, this is truth. We're, we're, we're finding someone or something that is more significant than us, that is greater than us, and we're calling that in or him in as a witness. And when you say, I swear to God, basically what you're saying is, you know, may God strike me down. You may think twice before you say that again. But may God strike me down if this is not the truth. Well, who's God going to swear by? I mean, there is no one greater than God. So what does God say? By myself, I have sworn. I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, me. This is what God does when he wants to communicate that this is really serious what I'm telling you. So he goes on and here's what he says to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice? So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So in verse 17 and 18, what God does. If you've read the book of Genesis up to this point, this sounds familiar. 
God is, is repeating some things that he said. He's recapitulating promises that he has made to Abraham before. He began in verse 12. We read of him in verse 15, in verse 17. And we can actually break this down. In, in the first half of verse 17, God recapitulates his promise to provide many descendants. Right? He has promised Abraham many descendants. You're going to have much offspring, plural. And in the second half of verse 17, God recapitulates his promise to provide one descendant in particular. One descendant in particular. So what God has already promised Abraham is I'm going to give you offspring and it's going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you a lot of children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. God has made that clear to Abraham. I'm going to give you offspring, plural. But God's also made it clear that I'm going to give you offspring singular. There's going to be a very special offspring. There's going to be a very particular descendant. And through him, all nations on the earth will be blessed. So he's made promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you many descendants. And I'm going to give you one very special descendant within your descendants. Who will be Christ. Verse 17a. This is the many descendants, the the plural offspring, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. Okay, so he recapitulates his promise to give Abraham many descendants. But now God recapitulates his promise to provide one descendant in particular and your offspring is a singular now. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So I'm also going to give you one very special offspring and that offspring who is Jesus Christ, who would come in the line of Abraham. He will possess the gate of his enemies. He will possess the gate of the dragon. This is what God has been promising from Genesis chapter three. God has been telling his people, right? I am going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send a very special offspring. And he is going to bruise in the garden. Remember, he will bruise the dragon's head. He will win. He will be victorious. And so throughout your Old Testament, what you have to start is a little pin light of what was going to happen in the future. It's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. These men and prophets are learning more and more and more about God's plan to rescue his people through this very special descendant. And when Jesus comes, it's like full wattage. All the lights are on. The descendant is here. The offspring is here. The light of the gospel has shined in our hearts, Paul says to the church in Corinth. But here for Abraham, he has these promises about what God plans to do. And so God reiterates the promise. There will be a special offspring. He will possess the gate of his enemies. And all nations on the earth shall be blessed through him. All nations on the earth would be blessed through this offspring, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ would come and die for the sins of the whole world. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, helps us to interpret what we're reading here. Okay, the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. So if you're struggling to figure out what Scripture means, 
Don't start reading books. Find more scripture and see if those scriptures help you to understand that scripture. So Paul helps us in Galatians 3. Just so you know, we're not pulling this out of a hat. Oh, this plural offspring, singular offspring. Are we reading into the text? Well, Paul said in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referred to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Paul says, who is Christ. So that's what God is saying to Abraham way back when in Genesis 22. He's making promises to Abraham about this very special descendant who will come. Your offspring. And through him, he will possess the gate of his enemies. He will kill the dragon. And he will be blessing everybody. Everybody will be blessed through him. And then Paul tells us that offspring is the Christ. Now, the... The sandwich here, in the middle, God makes these promises again to Abraham, but the the bread on the top and the bottom, if you look at verse 16 and 18, God says why he's reiterating these promises to Abraham. Verse 16 and verse 18, because, because, why are you doing this, God? Verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And then in verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. So God repeats his promises to Abraham and God says, I am being faithful to my promises. And he says here, because you have been faithful to me, you have faithfully obeyed me. I mean, if you want to pattern your Christian, if you want to pattern your obedience after someone in the Bible, okay, other than Jesus, if you want a a mortal example The pattern your life after of faith and obedience. The one who's held up is Abraham. Look at Abraham. Look at his obedience. One commentator points out his obedience was a prompt obedience. It was long lasting and it was willing. Prompt obedience. We can read in chapter 17, verse 21, uh, chapter 21, chapter 22. God asks Abraham to do a lot of difficult things. He asks Abraham to obey when it's very difficult. And Abraham always obeys promptly. Promptly. Right away, he obeys God. If you were here last week, we pointed out that when God called him to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, and the next day to set out for the journey, Abraham rose early in the morning and began that day. That is prompt obedience. We said this, many of us as Christians struggle to get up early in the morning to read our Bible. Abraham got up early in the morning to sacrifice his son in obedience to Christ. That is faithful obedience. That is prompt obedience. There is a time when God's word is clear where we don't need to think about it. We don't need to pray about it. We don't need to meditate on it. These are just stalling tactics that we use as Christians. There is a time for that, but when we know what the Lord's revealed will is and what He's called us to do, it is time for action. Right? The Nike slogan applies at that point. Just do it. Do something. Obey the Lord. And Abraham's obedience was prompt obedience. But it was also long-lasting. He had three days to chicken out. Three days he's on this journey up to this mountain where he's going to sacrifice his son. He had a lot of time to think. He had a lot of time to turn around. He had a lot of time to go back. 
And if your experience is like mine, too much of your Christian life is starting things and then not finishing them, starting and stalling, starting and stopping. Okay, discipleship of Christ is, 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 is long obedience in the same direction. And this is what we see with Abraham. Long obedience in the same direction. He is resolved to obey God. And it's a willing obedience. It's willing. Do you know the difference between willing obedience and unwilling obedience? If you have children, you've seen the difference between willing obedience and unwilling obedience. Abraham obeyed God willingly. In other words, he, he could have obeyed God and hated him for it. But he's not grumbling. He's not kicking the dirt. His head isn't hanging down when he's on the way to obey God. It's not like, well, God, I'm going to do this because you're God and you told me to, but I, I hate you for asking me to do this. It's a willing obedience. To the point where when he's gathered with the servants and his son, before he and his son head up to the mountain where he's going to sacrifice his son, he looks at the servants and says, we're going to worship God. That's willing obedience. He was about to do this thing that he knew would be so terrible and so painful, and yet he called it worshiping God because it was obedience. So based on that, based on that, God says, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. This is what God is saying. Because you have been faithful unto obedience. In other words, because your faith is real. My promise, my commitment, my covenant is with the faithful. It's with my children. And, And my children are those who love me and obey me. They're not just the ones who say they love me and say they'll obey me and say they're Christian and put on my jersey. They're the ones who actually who actually bear my name and mean it and obey me, even when it's difficult. And so God is saying, because your faith is real, I will keep my promise to you. Now, for some of you, you read that and that that might that might freak you out. Because you may think to yourself, well, hold on, hold on. If God's covenant, if God's promise is conditional like that, and it's dependent on me being faithful and me always obeying God, I'm not like Abraham. I don't obey God like that. I struggle to obey. I do start things. I do stop things. Does this mean that this whole thing is riding on me? And if I'm not faithful, then the opposite would be true for me. And God would say, because you've been faithless, because you've not obeyed me, and because you've not listened to me, these promises are not for you. Now, all of a sudden, these promises are in jeopardy. I start to wonder, I start to question. Do I have the kind of faith that is the faith of God's people? So that I can with confidence hold on to these promises of God. The answer is kind of tricky, isn't it? The answer is kind of tricky. If we're going to say it truthfully. Because we could speak about Abraham's faith and we could say two things uh, in, in very honest ways. One honest way to describe what we're reading of here is to say that Abraham here evidences his own faith. And that is true. This isn't God being faithful through him. This isn't God pulling the faith string. Making him say things, making him do things, possessing him, if you will. That's not what, that's not what God is doing. So Abraham is expressing his own faith here. And he is evidencing his own faith. 
But there's another way to honestly say what is happening here, isn't there? And that's that Abraham is evidencing an imparted faith. So it's his own faith. It is his faith. He loves God, has affection for God. He is trusting God. But where did that faith come from? That faith is imparted to him. And if you have faith, that faith is imparted to you. That means that when the faith is required of God's children, the faith is given to his children to the degree of which it is needed. So some of you might even know as Christians and think about terrible things that you could go through and endure. And you hear about other Christians going through and say, I couldn't do that. I couldn't give up my son. I couldn't handle my child being sick. I can't imagine if a child was taken from me. If I went bankrupt, if this happened, if my health deteriorated, I couldn't be faithful. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't just give you this massive surplus of faith. God gives his children the faith they need when they need it. Romans 12, 3, in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, those of you who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, do not boast. Why? Because your faith is what? A gift from God. A gift from God. Is this great faith that we see in Abraham? It is great faith we see in Abraham. Is it his faith? It is his faith. Has this faith been imparted to him by God? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is God. And these are his children. So that brings us now to verse 13 and 14. 13 and 14. So one more time, I promise. Let me read the verses before. That bring us right up to verse 13. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, remember what God is doing with Abraham here. If we go back to verse one, we can remember what it is that God is doing with Abraham. Why is he putting Abraham through this? Why is he telling Abraham to sacrifice his son? What does verse 1 say? After these things, God tested Abraham. So what is God up to? God is testing Abraham. He is going to provide proof of his faith. Either his faith is going to be proven and evidenced or it's not. There's a difference between, oh, there's faith in my heart and I love God and I trust God in word and in deed. Now, real faith Real love for God, real affection for God, real trust in God is going to lead to obedience. But it's just theoretical before there's actual fruit on the tree. And so God brings tests for his people and he brings one to Abraham. It's an opportunity for him before Isaac and before his family and before God to prove that his faith is sincere and genuine. 
Now, here's the thing. When we get to the end of verse 12, I think the test is over. The test is over at this point. The purpose of a test is to get results. Well, God has the results. Abraham had his his hand lifted high above his head with the knife. He was ready to slay his son. He was really going to go through with it, right? Abraham wasn't... The, the picture is not Abraham there with his hand up in the air for 10 minutes saying, uh, you can stop me now. Can't you see how willing I am? I'm going to do this. I promise. I really am. No, he was willing to sacrifice his son. So at this point, at the end of verse 12, the test is over. The results are in. Isaac has been rescued. God calls out to Abraham and basically says, well done, good and faithful servant. The test is over. But God does not send them on their way home. Because God still has something to show Abraham. That's the point as I try to make 13 and 14 here stand out. The end of verse 12, the test is done. The results are in. But God doesn't say, okay, I see that you're willing to sacrifice your son. Good job. You can go home now. There's more to the story, isn't there? Why? Because God has something to show Abraham. Let me set this up. Let me set this up before we look closely at what that is. Some things about Abraham to remember. We can take other scripture and remember some things about Abraham that are important here. Abraham was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. Hey, not everyone's a prophet, and there are no prophets anymore. But there was a day when there was a prophet, and a prophet was literally the mouthpiece of God. A prophet was one to whom God spoke directly, audibly. God would deal with his prophets, and he would impart truth to them, and they were responsible to speak that truth to others or to write down that truth for others. That's why Ephesians 2.20 tells us that we've got this book, we've got our Christianity, we've got the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those who took God's word and imparted God's word to us. Well, Abraham, chapter 20, verse 7, tells us that Abraham was a prophet of God. God dealt directly and audibly with his prophets, and he would deal that way with Abraham. The spirit of Christ, 1 Peter 1, it tells us the spirit of Christ dwelt in these men. Galatians 3, 6 tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. God preached the good news of the rescuer who was to come to Abraham. The Spirit of Christ told him this, showed him this. And we also know that one of the things that the prophets went through, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11 tells us that God would reveal to the prophets his future plan and and, and future grace and how he was going to work. But this produced a lot of questions and confusion with the prophets and they had to wrestle with it. And Peter tells us about that. When is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen? Sometimes they were saying things that they did not totally understand. So Abraham is one of those men whom God is dealing with in that specific and direct way, communing with him in that way. It means that God is dedicated to Abraham to tell him things so that he can tell others and to show him things so that he can show others. 
And obviously we don't have a record of everything that God told Abraham and that God showed Abraham. The Bible, you understand, it's selective history. Okay, God is giving us what, what we need to know to put the pieces together, but it's not exhaustive history of God dealing with his people. So we don't have everything that God told Abraham. We don't have everything that God showed Abraham. But here's what we do know so far. We know that God has promised him blessing and land and offspring and a particular offspring who would kill the dragon and save God's people from sin. And we also have, in terms of what God has shown Abraham, a very interesting passage that goes with our text today. In John chapter 8, verse 56. If you have your Bible and you're following along, turn to John chapter 8, verse 56. We'll show you how this ties into verses 13 and 14. You remember what's going on in John chapter 8? How Jesus gets into an argument with some of the religious leaders of the day, which was not uncommon. Jesus argued a lot. Sometimes the arguments went well. Sometimes they didn't go so well. These particular religious leaders are, uh, they're very proud and arrogant, and this is what they're taking pride in. They're taking pride in their law-keeping and their pedigree. Okay, so Jesus comes into town, they don't like what he's saying, and they're very boastful, they're bragging, and they think that they're this elite group, and they base that on how well they keep the law, Okay, so how they've conformed ethically, we're very moral, we're very righteous and upstanding. I mean, the outside of our cup is, is nice and clean. People respect us, they say nice things about us, they look up to us, they want our advice. We're great guys, is what they're saying. And, and then they drive this home with, with, with Jesus. They get, they get offended that Jesus is talking to them the way that he is and confronting them. And they kind of pull this, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're talking to? And do you remember what they say? We are children of Abraham. Do you know who that is, Jesus? Abraham. The father of our faith. Here's what they were saying. They were taking great pride in their pedigree. We are physical. We're Israel. We are physical, biological descendants of Abraham. That's the family that we're a part of. And you're going to come and speak to us this way and confront us this way. And Jesus just lets them have it. He lets them have it. Do you remember what he says? He says, actually, you are not true sons of Abraham. You may be physical descendants of Abraham, but the real sons of Abraham love God the way Abraham did. And obey God the way Abraham did. And trust God the way Abraham did. Those spiritual traits they have inherited from their father Abraham. They're faithful like Abraham. And then he takes it, as if that wasn't offensive enough, he takes it a step further with these men. And he says, you want to know who your daddy is? Do you remember this, what he tells them? He says, your daddy is not Abraham. Your daddy is the devil. Because you're doing his will. And you're obeying him. And you act a lot like him. <laughs> this is how he spoke. So in John eight fifty six, he brings up Abraham. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Jesus says, you hate me. Abraham loved me. You want to get rid of me. Abraham was looking forward to the day when I would be here. Jesus said, so we're learning something else about Abraham here and what God showed him during his life. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. So Abraham saw Jesus's day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus says in John 8 here, Jesus says that Abraham saw something and it made him glad. He saw it, whatever that is. We're going to find out. Abraham saw something. In his day, visually saw something and it made him rejoice. These are strong words here. It filled him with joy. It made him glad. What did Abraham see? What made him so glad? I believe John 8.56 refers to our text today. Specifically verse 13 and 14. Because God is going to do something visual for Abraham. In verse 13 and 14, it's not what God is telling Abraham, though God told his prophets many things. It's what God would show his prophets. And 8.56 of John says that Abraham saw something. And here in verse 13 and 14, God is going to do something visible before Abraham that's going to teach him something great. What has God just done in verse 12? He has rescued his son from death. You think he has Abraham's attention? He has Abraham's attention. If you're going to give an object lesson, this is the time to give it. So here he is, and God is going to do something visual. And remember where they are, by the way. Remember where they are. They're on the Mount of Moriah. They're on the Mount of Moriah which is either the site or very near the site of Calvary where Christ will one day be crucified on the cross. It is in that exact geographical location that I believe God shows Abraham something in these two verses that fills Abraham with joy, causes him to rejoice. Jesus said, he saw my day and was glad. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So let me say what is happening here. Two points, very basically, minimally said. The first point is this. God still required a sacrifice. This is very important. This is very important. Abraham went up to offer his son as a sacrifice. God withheld him from sacrificing his son. But God does not then send him home. And say you've you've passed the test. You've proven yourself faithful. God still required a sacrifice. Now, the second and obvious point is that God provided the sacrifice. God still required a sacrifice. And then God provided the sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. You see that in verse 13. God doesn't let him out of the sacrifice. 
but God provides the sacrifice. And so verse 14, what's Abraham's response? So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So what we're talking about here this morning is the provision of God. What Abraham literally says is uh, in Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. Okay, there's a catchy song. Some of you know, unfortunately. <laughs> Jehovah Jireh, right? My provider. It means the Lord is my provider. Literally, literally it means the Lord will see to it. This is what Abraham says following this provision from God. He literally says the Lord will see to it. So take your eyes back up to verse 8. Let's see this where the word provide first shows up. And let's see from beginning to end how God communicates and works his provision for Abraham here in these verses. If you go up to verse 8, remember Isaac has just asked dad a question. He's looking at dad and they're they're on their way to offer a burnt offering. He says, we've got the knife, we've got fire, we've got wood. He says, where's the offering? Isaac asks his dad. And this is Abraham's response. It's the first place the word provide shows up. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And then God provides what we just read. Skip down to verse 13. The first half of the verse says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. So just like Abraham said, the Lord will provide, verse 13, God provides. And then that prompts Abraham to, verse 14, he called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So here's a sequence of events. Okay, number one, Abraham trusts God to provide a lamb for the burnt offering. Verse 8. Abraham trusts God to provide a lamb for the burnt offering. Next, God provides a ram for the burnt offering. That's significant. And we'll get there. So God provides a substitute, but it's not a lamb. Next, Abraham privately acknowledges God's provision, right? He worships God on the spot. He says, the Lord will provide. That's just between him and Isaac at that point. He just privately acknowledges God's provision. And then, finally, Abraham's private acknowledgement becomes a public proverb. You see that? Abraham started just saying, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So this little private worship, this private saying, naming of this place, it turns into a public expression of God's provision for his people. Now, let's look even more closely at these verses and answer some of the questions that we just raised going through them. So Abraham responded to Isaac and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. So here are Isaac and Abraham. And they're off to worship God. 
And the way they're going to worship God is by offering a burnt offering. And Isaac looks into his dad's eyes and says, where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? And in verse 8 here, Abraham here, he responds truthfully, but in a way that Isaac would misunderstand. Let me explain that. Abraham responds to his son truthfully, but in a way that Isaac would misunderstand. He tells Isaac the truth. This is the truth, remember. The truth is that Abraham believes Isaac is the figurative lamb for the burnt offering. And once dead, Abraham believes God is going to raise him up. So we don't want to be presumptuous and start getting into the mind of the prophets. But in this case, we can get into the mind of Abraham because Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19 tells us what Abraham was thinking when he was on his way up the mountain. Right. And what he was thinking as he's on his way up the mountain is that my son is the lamb for the offering. And he believed that he was going to have to go through with this. So some of you weren't sure when you've read this story, you're thinking, well, did Abraham really think he was going to have to go through with this? Or did he know that God was going to be faithful and he was going to stop him at the last minute? I mean, that's what I was getting to earlier. Abraham was not thinking that God was going to come in and rescue him at the last minute. He didn't stand with his knife up in the air for 10 minutes saying, uh, you can intervene now. I'm faithful. No, what was in the mind of Abraham as they walked up the hill was, I'm going to kill my son. I'm going to have to sacrifice my son. And this is actually what he tells Isaac if you look carefully at his words, especially if you look at it in the Hebrew. He tells his son the truth. But Isaac would have heard it in the way that most of us hear it. And we heard the words, my son, in verse 8, we heard them as an endearment. Right? I'm talking to you, my son. And we didn't hear them as the subject of the sacrifice. But actually, that's what Abraham is saying. If the term, my son, was an endearment, it actually would have preceded what Abraham said. He would have said, my son, the Lord will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. But that's not what he says. That's how Isaac would have heard it. He would have heard the endearing my son. But what Abraham truthfully tells him is that the Lord will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Do you hear that? Do you hear how he's saying it? Isaac's question was six words exactly. Abraham's response was six words exactly. The son begins the question with my father. The father ends his response with my son. He is carefully wording himself here and he gives the truth to his son Isaac, but he's tender to his son. And he's tender to his son's frame. And he speaks the truth to him in a way that he will not yet fully understand. This is why that's so important. It's so important that we that we recognize the burden that Abraham is under right now so that we appreciate the relief that he's going to be under momentarily. 
Abraham looks at his son and says, God himself will provide for himself the lamb for the offering, my son. You are the figurative lamb. You are the one to be slain, my only dear son. So as Abraham is climbing this mountain, he is thinking to himself, I am providing my only son as the lamb to be sacrificed. Now, for those of you who know the gospel, and you hear that, and you're starting to see the significance here. So Abraham is climbing this mountain and he's thinking to himself, I am providing my only son. And God kept emphasizing that with him, didn't he? I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you dearly love. So Abraham is going, I am providing my only son as the lamb to be sacrificed before God. And then we come to verse 13. And Abraham and Isaac are not presented with a lamb, but a ram. Was God out of lambs? That was a rhetorical question. You're like, I don't know, was he? God was not out of lambs. God was not thinking, you know, we just gave the last lamb out. This happened yesterday. We'd have been good. But now we're out of stock. A ram's going to have to do. Everything is meaningful. This is not arbitrary. There's a reason for this. Okay, the figurative lamb is going to be spared. So you would expect, Abraham would expect the literal lamb. That would be appropriate for a burnt offering. But God does not provide a lamb. God provides a ram. Why? Why did God provide a ram? Now, I do plan to answer that question. I know sometimes I ask these really big questions and then I say, I don't know. I do want to answer that. But before we do, let's first acknowledge and rejoice in what has already happened. God, I mean, whether God provides a a lamb or a ram or a lion or a platypus, God provided a substitute to die in the place of Abraham's only son. God provided a substitute to die in the place of Abraham's only son. Doctrinally, this is called substitutionary atonement and is a precious doctrine for us as Christians. Substitutionary atonement. How have we been atoned? How have we been made at one with God? How has that happened? How have we been reconciled to God as sinners? And the answer is a substitute. There's a punishment that we deserve and there's a death that we deserve. And Christ died in our place as our substitute. Abraham here is introduced to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. A substitute, a sacrifice, I should say, was still required, but God provided the sacrifice. And this is moving us into the gospel, isn't it? A sacrifice is still required, but God provided the sacrifice. You see, if 
If God was a religious God, he would have just patted Abraham on the back and said, hey, you did a good job not withholding your son. I see now you're one of the good guys, so come and spend eternity with me in heaven. This is what every other religion teaches other than Christianity. If it even gets to the place where you and God are not reconciled, it, 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 it will get to the place where we say, but if you are good enough, and, and do these things and do them right and do them well enough and are a good enough person, at least compared to these people. And if you do enough things right and you do enough good deeds and you appear good outwardly, if you, you, you have some kind of ladder that you can climb and that will get you to heaven and that will get you to God. You just got to prove that you're one of the good people because God saves good people. And so we pick out and we say, those are all the bad people, but we are always one of the good people. We're always one of the good people. We're never that guy. But those we understand. Well, yeah, God wouldn't save them. God wouldn't love them. They're not religious enough. But I'm religious. I do good things. Some churches that even call themselves Christian churches will subtly or overtly teach that you are justified and saved by being a good person. Now, if that were the case, then test over. No need for verse 13 and 14. We don't need a sacrifice. We don't need a penalty. We don't need a consequence. Game over. Well done, Abraham. Nice job. Now I know you're one of the good guys. See you in heaven. But God still required a sacrifice. And God provided the sacrifice. But why a lamb and not a ram? God provided a ram and not a lamb to show Abraham that the lamb was still to come. So he introduces him to the idea of a substitute. But it's not the ultimate substitute. Here's Abraham ready to offer his son up as the lamb. God spares his son and offers him not a lamb to be sacrificed, but a ram. Teaching Abraham that the lamb was still to come. Now we know that Abraham went home and began telling people that the lamb was still to come. Because when you read your Old Testament, everybody's looking for the lamb. Everyone. Where's the lamb? When's God going to send the lamb? Isaiah speaks of it. Zechariah speaks of it. David speaks of it. Malachi speaks of it. All the way till you get to John chapter 1, verse 21, when John the baptizer looks across the river and sees Jesus coming. And do you remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So God does not provide a lamb for Abraham. He provides a ram to teach him that the lamb is still to come. The rescuer is still to come. The savior is still to come. Everyone's now looking, waiting, honoring God, following God. But send the lamb. When's the lamb going to come? When's the ultimate sacrifice going to come? Until Jesus comes and John, the baptizer, inspired by God, looks at him and draws everyone's attention and says, he's here. He's here. The Lamb of God, the one to be sacrificed, the ultimate sacrifice, the one we've been waiting for since Abraham and Isaac were on Mount Moriah. A long time. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 14. Abraham cries out, the Lord will provide. And on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, we may have expected him to name the place. The Lord provided. Did he get the tense wrong here? It was verb tense messed up. Why does he call this place the Lord will provide? What happened? The Lord provided. That seems to be the appropriate name and the expected name. And then you would expect the saying to be on the mount of the Lord. It was provided because that's what just happened. That was his experience. But he names this place. The Lord will provide future tense. And then the saying that spreads was on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided future tense. Why? Why future tense? Because Abraham here, John 8.56, is being shown the day of the Lord. And he rejoices in it, and his heart is glad and filled with joy. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad in it. You remember the question we asked? Well, when did he see it? And where did he see it? Right here, verse 13. When he saw that ram, when he saw the substitute, when he learned that the sacrifice was still required, but that God would provide the sacrifice, Abraham saw the day of the Lord and he rejoiced. So three things. Let me recap what Abraham has just been shown. Number one, God still required a sacrifice. Number two, God provided the sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. And number three, the ultimate sacrifice was still to come. The ultimate sacrifice was still to come, the Lamb of God, which is why Abraham named the place, not the Lord has provided, but the Lord will provide. And it's why he spread the word on the mount of the Lord right here, literally. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then finally, I believe that Abraham reflects on the object of this near sacrifice. The object of the near sacrifice, his only son, who is so dear to him. And he concludes that at the proper time, God would provide his own son to die for our salvation, which ignites gladness in his heart. The gospel is preached to him. Galatians 3, 6. He saw the day of Jesus and it made him glad. John eight fifty six. So he sees that God requires sacrifice, that God provides the sacrifice. But then he begins to think about the object of this near sacrifice, his only son. Remember a few moments ago, he was climbing this mountain. And what was he thinking to himself? I am providing my only son as the lamb to be sacrificed. And now God has told him, now I will provide the sacrifice. Abraham puts this together. God will provide his only son. 
to be sacrificed in the place of his people. Robert Candlish said, 19th century Scottish pastor, thus the very transaction which so severely tried the faith of Abraham showed him all that his faith longed so much to see. He saw the day of Christ, the day of his humiliation and triumph, not darkly and dimly as others then saw it, but clearly, distinctly, vividly. He saw the very way in which the salvation of man was to be accomplished and the blessing purchased for all the families of the earth by the atoning death and glorious resurrection of the beloved Son of God. And seeing thus gladly the day of Christ, he saw Christ himself as the living one, dead indeed and sacrificed once for all, yet still living and by his very death enabled to be the author of life to the many sons whom he bringeth into glory. In conclusion, a word to those of you who are not believers and a word to those of you who are believers, assuming that we've got both here today. There are those of you here today who are Christians, those of you who believe in Jesus Christ. That means that your eyes have been opened and Jesus has become your Lord, King over your life. He is your Savior. You've trusted in Him and His work to save you, not in your own work to save you. And He is your treasure so that nothing else even feels like a treasure anymore. Now, some of you are not believers. To those of you who are not believers who are here this morning, I would repeat those two points. Number one, God still requires a sacrifice. God still requires a sacrifice. What that means is that God is a good God and God is a just God. And if God is a good God and if God is a just God, and we certainly all hope he is, then he does not let the guilty go free. And he does not leave the guilty roaming the streets and he does not leave them unpunished. And the truth is that all of us are guilty. And blood needs to be shed. A price needs to be paid. And it will either be yours for eternity or it will be Christ's on your behalf. But justice will be served. Now the reason that so many of us feel like God's, when we hear of God's judgment and we hear of eternal damnation and we hear of hell, the reason it feels so overreactive to so many of us today is because we completely underestimate our sinfulness. We underestimate how sinful we are. That we as finite beings would, would disobey God, would dishonor God, would be indifferent to God. We fail to realize how offensive that is to the God of the universe, the God who has done nothing but good for us, who has provided us every faculty of our being, who has given us every day of our life, who is infinitely innocent and infinitely worthy of all praise and affection and devotion and obedience. And most of the world lives their life indifferent to him. And it's totally outrageous. And it's sinful. 
the way you know the degree of sinfulness or how bad something you do is, is the degree to which the one you're offending is innocent. Right? The more innocent the one you're sinning against, the worse the sin feels. Isn't this true? This is why we take crimes against children so seriously. This is why it burns in our hearts and in our souls and it feels worse, doesn't it? It feels worse and more awful because these children are innocent. Friends, there is not a more innocent victim of our sin than God. He is much more pure than our children. He is much more innocent than our children. And he alone is worthy of our praise and devotion and adoration. And so when people live their lives indifferent to him, rebellious to him, disobedient to him, dishonoring to him, it is infinitely offensive. And a sacrifice is required. What this means is that we are, as Timothy Keller says, we are far more sinful than we ever dared to believe. It's worse than you thought, friends. It's worse. Now, this is where the good news becomes good news. Because while we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared to even hope. God does not love us because we are lovable. He makes us lovely. A sacrifice is still required and God provides the sacrifice. This between Isaac and Abraham was just a picture and a portrait of what God was going to do when God sent his one and only son whom he dearly loved to die on the cross in the place of sinners. God has provided the sacrifice. God has provided the atonement. And the way for sinners to be reconciled to God is to not look inward, but to look upward. And the way for sinners to be reconciled to God is to beat their chest and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to base that cry for mercy on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because you hear, hopefully, of the cross and you hear of Christ and you hear his love for sinners. And that may just spur you into some hope. If God would be merciful and if Christ's death and suffering could count for your death and your suffering. So for those of you who are not believers, a sacrifice will be made and blood will be shed and it will either be yours eternally or it will be Christ's on your behalf. Look to Christ. Turn to Christ. Faith, take hold of Christ. And many of you I would expect are believers. And so this is what I would say to believers for encouragement. When you look at Abraham's experience and then his song or his word, his worship that he sang. Okay, what happened for Abraham? The Lord provided. We see that the Lord provided, but his song became the Lord will provide the Lord will provide not not past tense, not present tense, but future tense It's not just reminiscing in the good old days here. Right. The song isn't the Lord provided. Look at this great thing he did. No, it's look at what God did. But God, whose character is is infinite. God, whose character goes on and on and on, who never changes. So that means that if God provided, it means he's providing. And then he means that he always will provide. So. Abraham looks out at the future and based on God's provision in this moment, he looks out at all the future and the lenses he looks through are the Lord will provide. 
I'm uncertain about a lot. So are you about tomorrow or next week or the years to come. But there is a lens that we look through and it is the Lord will provide. For us, Christian, your experience has been the Lord has provided. That is your experience. This is what God has done for you. He has provided for you over and over and over again. And so our song is, the Lord will provide. John Newton wrote a poem that goes like this. He cannot have taught us to trust in his name and thus far have brought us to put us to shame. For each Ebenezer we hold in review confirms his sure purpose to bring us safe through. You know what an Ebenezer is? God provides his people with Ebenezers. An Ebenezer is a a physical reminder of God's faithfulness. Something you can look at and see and touch. And it reminds you of God's faithfulness. So you see God's people in the Old Testament setting up Ebenezers. And it's something that God does to remind them of what God will always do. Now, Abraham, as he walked down the mountain, he had his arm around his Ebenezer. My son is still here. The Lord provided. And so he knows what the Lord will always provide. We have many Ebenezers in our home. Some of them have legs. We could name our daughter Ebenezer. Kind of pretty, actually, I think. Because she's an Ebenezer. Now, some of you know the story, but you would know that that every time we look at this little girl, we are reminded that the Lord has provided And we're reminded, when we're reminded that the Lord has provided, we are reminded to view the future because of these Ebenezers through the lens of, and the Lord will provide. The Lord will do what He has done again and again and again. He will always be faithful. The song is much better, isn't it? The best song is not the Lord has provided, though we sing of what the Lord has done. The best song is the Lord will provide. What he still means to do and how he still means to provide. But we see so dimly. So he gives us these reminders. I'll close with the words of the song we sing. Come thou fount. That's the other place you've heard that word and probably sang it and wondered, what is that? (laughs) Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been such a good father. 
You loved us before we were even created. And you set your heart on us before we were even created. You made us. You watched over us all of our days. Numbered each day. Designed each day of our life. At one point you came and your Holy Spirit worked. And you opened our eyes to how much you'd been loving us for all eternity. And you helped us to see the way that you had made back to you and the provision that you had offered through our elder brother, your son, Jesus Christ. We loved what we heard. We loved what we saw. And we cried out to you in faith. It was the best thing we'd ever heard. Then, Father, you adopted us into your home. You took us who were spiritual orphans, alienated from you, and you drew us in and you brought us and gave us a seat at your table. You gave us a room with a bed and blankets and you gave us food and drink and you promised that it will always be there. And now you've promised God not only to love us our whole life, but to make us love you more our whole life, to deepen our affections for you and our desire for you. And we find that we're just happiest when we're loving you and when we're understanding who you are. And you keep sharing us with us your grace and your love and your mercy. And you keep bringing us into closer and closer and telling us more and more of who you are. And our joy gets deeper and deeper and deeper. It makes us, God, look forward to the day when we see you face to face. And when we glory in your kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. God, I pray that if there are people listening who do not know you, that they'd want to know you so badly right now. And I pray it wouldn't just be a surface sort of carnal curiosity, God, but I pray that you would awaken them in such a way that that they that they at the same time feel totally far from you, but feel and see a way close to you. That they would see the gospel and see the cross and the things would make sense and pull at their heart, spirit, and you draw them to yourself. We love you. And we give you all praise, glory, and honor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.